Hi, this is Mel Fulton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Literati Glitterati. Championing stylish wordsmiths and sterling conversation, it's a weekly book show that loves a good story well told. Literati Glitterati is broadcast live on Triple R each Wednesday from midday till 1pm. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Lovely to be here. Lovely to be talking to you. Thank you so much to Leah and her gentle and kind vibe on the airwaves this morning. Um, I think her message of pouring kindness into spaces where you can is a really good one. And if you need some help, please ask for it. You can call Lifeline if you need to on 13 11 14. Or if you are an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person, please call 13 Yarn. Sending, sending lots and lots of love to everyone over the airwaves today. We are broadcasting to you live from the stolen land of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation always was, always will be. Belter of a show today. The formidable Melissa Lukashenko will be taking, uh, will be talking to us about her brilliant new epic Eden Glassy and treating us to a reading from it as well. Uh, and Madeline Gray, debut author of Green Dot, which has already sold its film and TV rights in a hot and heavy six-way auction, will be coming in to talk about her sad and funny and clever and exasperating Hera Stephen. Uh, Melissa Lukashenko's is a pre-recorded interview uh, recorded in the studio when Melissa was here a few weeks ago for spring fling um, and for her book launch so we're just going to play a couple of short little announcements and then we'll get stuck right into it stick around triple ah on Literati Glitterati, my name is Mel Fulton and it is my great delight to introduce to you our first guest on the show today. Melissa Lukashenko is a highly decorated guri author of Bundjalung and European heritage. Her sixth novel, Too Much Lip, won the 2019 Miles Franklin Award and the Queensland Premier's Award for a work of state significance. She's won a Walkley Award for her non-fiction work and she's also a founding member of Sisters Inside. Uh, Melissa writes about ordinary Australians and the extraordinary lives they lead and she writes with muscularity with compassion and with glee eden glassy which was released just a couple of weeks ago through the university of queensland press tortures queensland's colonial myths and reimagines australia's future with verve intelligence and blistering energy it's an epic tale following two stories set five generations apart when melanian falls in love with nita in eden glassy their saltwater people still outnumber the british as colonial unrest peaks, Melanian dreams of taking his bride back to Yagumba country, but his plans for independence collide with white justice. Meanwhile, two centuries later, activist Winona meets Dr Johnny at the hospital, where they both care for Winona's centenarian Granny Eddie. Sparks fly all over the shop, not always in the ways they desire, and humming underneath it all are the legacies of the past, reaching out through time to touch them. This is a pre-recorded interview. Let's get stuck into it. Can we start with the title of the book? What does Eden Glassy mean? Yeah, Eden Glassy is a word that jumped out at me. Um, it's supposed to come from a blending of Edinburgh and Glasgow. Um, that's disputed, as is a lot of stuff uh, in the book and around colonial history generally. But, um, yeah, in the 1850s, the uh, New South Wales Attorney-General was a Scots bloke called Forbes, and it's a word that he imported to Australia and then tried to bestow on what's now Brisbane. Um, but it didn't stick, and it, to me it, it spoke to the um, the nature of what I was trying to say in Eden Glassy, which was about um, possibilities that didn't eventuate. Yeah, I mean, I think that's 
a really great place to to sort of branch out from because this book so much is a book about possibilities and the way things could have been and the way they are now and trying to find a way ahead um my understanding is you started writing this book in 2019 like while the fires were raging is that right I started in early 2019. Well, really, I started 20 or 30 years ago when I read a book called The Reminiscences of Tom Petrie, which is a memoir of um, the first white family in Brisbane. Um, But, yeah, I started writing the actual... um, researching for the actual manuscript in 2019, researched through the fires, wrote through the pandemic and, um, yeah, uh, finished it in a year with the Queensland floods and two of my brothers almost dying in hospital from separate heart infections. So, yeah, fire, flood and pestilence. <laughs> it's like, it was a big journey. Yeah, wow, what a journey. Um, <laughs> and now it's out and we're still asking you questions about it. Sorry about that. No, no it's all good. It's, uh, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy with it, I'd have to say. It's the only book I've ever finished and been fairly pleased with. Uh, no, they reckon no work of art is ever finished, only abandoned. But um, you know, in that context, I think I've I've produced a pretty pretty good book. I think it's a fantastic book, and it's got. I mean, it, it's such a jolt to the blood, you know. Um, but what I wanted to ask you was: so you wrote about Tom Petrie thirty years ago, and then you started in twenty nineteen. Why was now the time? Like. Um, I thought about writing colonial um, fiction in the 90s and I wasn't living in Brisbane at the time. I was living down on Bundjalung country and I I just had this sense that I needed to be um, living in the place that I was describing to do, to do it justice. And I'm really glad I waited because, you know, I've got um, a couple more books under my belt. I'm that much more polished as a writer and you know, a bit older and have a bit more, had a bit more sense knocked into me. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was it was a long time in the making and um, I think that's appropriate for a, a novel that's uh, got a very strong historical focus. Yeah, um, I was reading an interview with Zadie Smith not long ago and she sort of said, you know, any novelist who's living and working, um, you know, in a colonial settled land is eventually going to write an historical novel it sort of it feels inevitable well it it might um i don't i'm not a huge fan of um non-aboriginal authors doing that in australia because uh the gap like the the chasm between what people think they know and what they actually know is so huge Mm. and what happens unfortunately is a lot of the time writers you know early career writers or emerging writers will go oh that you know that's an interesting topic I'd like to write about the aborigines or I'd like to write about first contact and they kind of um they do it when they're cutting their teeth as writers and they don't have the insight either culturally or artistically really to be frank and then they go off and you know for the rest of their career they write about other things having done the damage that they're you know blissfully unaware that they've done by putting out yet more you know shallow um and pretty racist narratives about us so yeah i'd say if you haven't read a hundred books by aboriginal authors and if you haven't been inside 50 aboriginal homes please don't write about us yeah (laughs) thank you um I suppose I wanted to ask you about um, 
wanted to ask you about language, really, and about and about truth telling as well, and and the role of fiction in truth telling. Mm. Um, yeah. I think that you know we started this interview by talking about Eden Glassy and where it came from. Um, when you talk about the book, you sort of talk about the the history of Brisbane's name, mm. and the book is 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 full of is full of language. You know, mm-hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about your your journey with it and its significance, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that. And uh, there was a review in the Guardian this morning that that spoke about the language used as well. Uh, coming from my perspective, it's it's pretty light on in terms of Aboriginal language, mm. but I guess from, coming from the outside, it's it's um, pretty prominent. Uh, the language of the book is Yugambeh, which is the language that I speak the most of, and that's from just south of Brisbane, from the Gold Coast area and the Gold Coast hinterland, which is part of the Bunjalung language chain. I um, I didn't... What I did with language is I my um, Yuggera Aboriginal characters in Brisbane and also the main character who was a Gold Coast youth, I have them speaking standard English most of the time and I made that decision really deliberately because if I um, if I had them speaking in the Creole or uh, Pidgin English that they would have probably more likely been speaking uh, when they weren't talking to each other, I know a lot of uh, non-Aboriginal readers or, or white readers would have interpreted that as being stupid. Uh, unfortunately, so I, ha- I I gave them standard English, and that's because a lot of um, a lot of blackfellas I know who grow up speaking language are very um, adamant that speaking good standard English is important, and it's it's just a very ordinary thing that you would do as a language speaker. You know, if you speak Yolnumata fluently or, you know, if you speak Wiradjuri fluently or if you speak another language fluently, then why wouldn't you also speak English fluently? So the language in the historical part of the book is I've got the white fellas speaking in the kind of slightly archaic um, English of the time and then my Aboriginal characters slip into that a little bit but they mostly speak very standard English to um, so that that uh, pigeon doesn't get in between the character and the the plot and my readers, and then in the modern era, of course, Winona speaks Aboriginal English, and um, so does her grandmother in the hospital. And uh, over the course of the book, Doctor Johnny goes from being um, he, he learns to code switch, basically, which is part of the journey towards Aboriginality that he's on. Yeah, that's I, I feel like that's a really um a wonderful, a wonderful journey to read about, and I, I loved reading about Winona and Auntie She's Eddie. Fuck, eh? Winona is hysterical. Um, <laughs> for anyone who's listening, there is an absolutely electrifying scene in this book where Winona, um, <laughs> Winona grabs a didgeridoo from a white dreadlocked hippie player at the West End Market and basically clubs him with it. It is extraordinary. Um, can you talk to us about writing her? Yeah, she's just one of these characters that um, was just an effortless joy to write and <laughs> all she is is an amalgam of two or three young women that I know who are you know they're mouthy they're sassy they give no fucks and uh, very very um very very easy to spice up a book by including a Winona and the book needed a Winona to contrast to the historical era and the um 
uh, a lot of the hard stuff, not all of it, but a lot of the hard stuff happens in the colonial era, which also has humour. But um, Winona was there to to add fizz and um, a bit of enjoyable rage. Yeah, the rage. <laughs> um, can we talk about, yeah, I mean, about channelling, we can talk about Winona's rage or rage as a as a sort of um, corralling force in, in writing? Like, is that... Corralling, I'm not sure what you mean yeah, by corralling. Yeah, maybe corralling's not the right word. As a, like, as a, a generative sort of force in oh, writing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, she's pure id Winona and, mm. um, and lots, of, uh, lots of energy coming out of that, um, yeah, revolutionary spirit that she's got. On Literati Glitterati, you are listening to our interview with Melissa Lukashenko, author of the fantastic book Eden Glassy, which has just come out a couple of weeks ago through the University of Queensland Press. Um, stick around. We have got um, some more talking to do with Melissa. Melissa is also going to share a very rowdy and raucous reading with us um, from that very section of the book starring um, the fiery and fizzy Winona, which um, is something to really look forward to it's great stuff uh, but in the meantime we are gonna go to a track we're gonna have a listen to the new lower plenty we've been waiting a while for it seven years or something for this record no poets to come out um this song's called cold room shut blinds it's a belter triple r you could describe this story i think as a love story absolutely and it's a love story that operates on sort of several levels but could you could you speak to Eden Glassy in that way? Yeah, well, um, if you're not writing as a white supremacist, then you will have your, your black characters um, in love, falling in and out of love, because that's just part of having a, a fully human experience. And to, um, I've always had a rule in my writing that I've made for myself that I wouldn't kill off any characters prematurely because a... Um, I don't want to, but B, more importantly, the trope of the dying race is so strong still in Australia that my characters have to be alive and doing stuff and having adventures and being in love and and having love in their lives, all sorts of love, you know, love of country, love of family, love between friends and love between romantic partners uh, in order to push back against that very old and... um, ironically almost unkillable idea of us as the dying race which may not be as strong down here in Nam, but you know the idea of us as a damaged if not dying people is still really really powerful in parts of Australia north of here yeah absolutely mm-hmm. um can we talk about um I suppose you know unearthing not unearthing but uh Telling the story of Brisbane's history to, to perhaps a new audience, or you know, in a way that it has not been told before, and and talking about the legacy of of Dundali. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, next year, twenty twenty four, is the two hundred year anniversary, you know, bicentenary of when uh, the white man John Oxley sailed up the river and decided to rename the Warra into the Brisbane River. Uh, and I expected uh, that you know there'd be governments and various bodies and populations wanting to celebrate that. And I, what I wanted was to have a book already out or just recently released that said, "Well, 
hang on, wait a minute, that's that's your story about this place, but here's another story that, you know, have a chew on this and have a think about um, the stories that you aren't telling. Um, so that was, that was how come, why now? And Dundalee was one of the really um, powerful, precipitating... Uh, uh, events or images for the book because the um, Dundalee was a duller man from just north of Brisbane and he was a, a huge man. He was six foot seven or something and he was a resistance leader in uh, colonial, well, it was New South Wales at the time, but colonial Queensland. And he, uh, he marshaled troops from hundreds of kilometres around and under the instruction of the Aboriginal Parliament of the day, the Bora. He uh, he fought back against the British. They led, he led a guerrilla action, a guerrilla army, basically, um, you know, taking livestock, uh, killing livestock, killing shepherds at times, burning um, homesteads and really waging a campaign of uh, very, very strong resistance until he was betrayed and arrested in 1854. Uh, and in 1855 he was hung in the centre of the small town of Brisbane by a bloke called Green who was a convicted rapist and that's um, he he became the hangman. It was not a desirable job for anyone and he ended up with it. And he botched the hanging. He, uh, he didn't have the, the rope the right length and so uh, what ended up happening was this horrific, scene where Dunderley slowly strangled to death in front of the entire black and white population of the town. And Tom Petrie describes that in his memoir. Uh, and when I read that 30 years ago, I thought that's a scene that is just beautifully emblematic of the whole era of colonialism, of white supremacy, of what the British did and um, set the tone for so much that came afterwards. So I wanted to I wanted to have that as a, a pivotal moment in the book, and I have done that, but yeah. viewed through the eyes of my hero, Mullinian, the yeah. uh, Yugambeh youth who's come up from um, Yugambeh country on the Gold Coast and gotten stuck in Brisbane and consequently fallen in love with young Nita. It's a wonderful, he's a wonderful character, and that scene is just... is really so affecting and I think it also it also speaks to like the sort of the blundering and sort of boring nature of of evil as well you know like that Mm. terrible Mm. terrible mistake and how it has reverberated across a whole history you know it was in arguably it it marked the end of the war uh, of resistance in southeast Queensland uh, you know, some people would say the war has never ended. Some people, like Uncle Teddy Watson, would say we live in a state of undeclared truce, uh, and other people haven't thought about it at all. But the the capture and the hanging of Dunderley left a great void in leadership of that radical kind. Um, and uh, yeah, while while the frontier wars continued to rage, not far outside Brisbane, uh, in places like Maryborough and uh, Gold Coast Hinterland, Darling Downs, definitely. Inside the southeast corner, the hanging of Dunderley was a real turning point. Yeah. Um, I, I don't want us to end there. If I can ask you one more question about Melanion, mm. who is who's really, you know, the hero of this story and its central character, if you can yeah. talk a little bit about how, how he came to you and, and, and why he was the one to, to lead this. 
Yeah, well, I wanted my um, protagonist to be young because he has to be on a, a journey of learning not only about his own culture, which he's steeped in, having grown up, you know, with his mob and his family on his own country, but he had to learn about the white fellas, and here's the, the vehicle through which my readers see uh, colonial Brisbane. Uh, you know, so, uh, for example, when Nita's reflecting upon him, she's deeply, deeply in love with him, uh, and Nita's also Aboriginal, in the a part, you know, maybe halfway through the book they've fallen in love and she's sort of daydreaming about him and saying, oh, has he, has he ever touched a china plate? Has he ever been inside a church, you know? Can he, can he drive a dray or can he shear a sheep? And so the fact of him as a young man just coming into manhood, you know, the way white women respond to him, the way white men like um, the butcher Maine, who's a, a noted bully uh, in Queensland history, how he um, flicks his stock whip at Mullinion and then how Mullinion uses the the mechanism of a cricket match. You know, George Orwell said sport is war by other means and, <laughs> and Mullinion uh, uses a cricket ball as his weapon against Maine and, and humiliates this guy in, in front of Brisbane. So, yeah, he, he had energy and he had a character arc that did what I wanted to do as an author. Yeah, absolutely. I might just read this bit um, where Winona's at the markets and talking to Dr Johnny, who's um, got the hots for her. Yes. And uh, it uh, illuminates Winona's character. Um, Johnny's at a, uh, a stall at the markets and he's selling samosas, trying to raise money for what I've called Creek Care, which is an environmental group. Do I, Winona asked, through a mouthful of spiced potato, look like I've got ten bucks on me? Was this flirtation? Winona was clearly playing some kind of game, but Johnny didn't know the rules. He ploughed on. You look like you've got four bucks less than you did a minute ago. Wrong. She was laughing openly. At him? With him? If he smiled and let it go, he'd look weak. If he didn't let it go, he instantly became a tight ass and a killjoy. All over one vegan samosa. Johnny began to sweat under his creek care hat. We're raising money to buy a thousand Lamandra tubes, he said, retreating to the safety of facts. To keep Oxley Creek clean, or, or make it clean, I should say, because... Oh, good on you, Winona interrupted again, nodding. She seemed to enjoy interrupting him. Every river in Australia has been royally rooted in the arse by capitalism. The Murray-Darling's on its last legs because the cotton dams are full, but let's fix the climate one market stall at a time. Awesome. Johnny was confused. How could anyone under 50 possibly be against creek care? And wasn't addressing climate change a fundamental part of land rights? You got a better plan, he shot back. I'm all ears. Yeah, Dr Johnny, I've got a better plan, Winona said, coming back. She hitched her canvas satchel up and focused her full attention on Johnny. Some of yous must have real boats, right, with outboards? The club's got a tinny. Johnny couldn't stop staring at her lips, the shape of them, their utter kissability. All right, so here's how to fix your creek. You cook up a nice big feed of these beauties. Here Winona helped herself to a second samosa. And you grab a couple of six-packs and you park your tinny under the story bridge, or moor it, whatever it's called, one fine night, yeah? 
and you and your mates eat your samosas and have a beer and look at the stars and enjoy yourselves, okay? Don't forget the air guard. And when you've had your deadly feed and checked out the night sky for a few hours and told each other a lot of lies and had a few hours shut-eye, then you take your tinny up to the botanic gardens past them other boats and you chuck on high-vis vests and some steel cap boots and hard hats, right? It's getting close to daylight now. You take your fuel can, two full jerry cans if you can carry them, and a lighter. Make sure it's a good one, not an old gammon one that's just about fucked out. And then you head through the park to George Street and you go and burn Parliament House to the fucking ground. And when you get out of jail in about 20-odd years, you have yourselves another cook-up and another good look at the night sky, and then you do the same thing all over again, and you keep burning the cunt down till the dumb fucks inside start listening to the science. Winona looked at Johnny with a smile. That's what it's going to take, brah. Not lamandra tubes, not samosas, direct fucking action. Fucking A, wow. <laughs> what a woman. And she's saying all this while she's wearing, what T-shirt is she wearing? I can't remember. Um, uh, I can't remember either, actually. Uh, yeah, I just, I could just picture her so well and I was like, I would love to have a beer with you, Winona. I know she's wearing House of Dizzy Earrings. Yeah. Well, she was, actually. She's just taken them off to have a go at the white ditch player. Yeah. <laughs> So great. Um, Melissa Lukashenko, thank you so much for coming in. Boogle bear, boogle bear. Thanks. What a treat. On Literati Glitterati, my name is Mel Fulton. You've just been listening to the wondrous Melissa Lukashenko uh, reading from her fantastic new book, Eden Glassy. Go to a good independent bookshop and get it into you. It is fucking awesome blistering. Um, it's my great pleasure now to introduce you our second guest on Literati Glitterati this week, uh, Madeline Gray, a writer and critic from Sydney, Australia, whose debut novel, uh, Green Dot, is one of this year's most anticipated. It follows Hera Stevens, a hot mess of a 20-something who is brilliant and hates work and is working as a comment moderator for a major daily newspaper. There, she falls in love with Arthur, who is 40 and married and represents a boring kind of safety that she thinks she might be into. It's doomed to fail and everyone knows it from the start, no one more so than Hera. Welcome to the show, Madeline. Thank you, welcome. Welcome to me. <laughs> it's such a great pleasure to, um, to be welcomed to you, by you, live on the radio. Look, I loved, um, I loved Hera. I found her wonderful and excruciating and so much like myself. Um, and I noticed in the opening um, credits to this book, there's a fantastic quote from the New Zealand poet, a favourite of mine, Hera Lindsay Bird. Yeah. Can you tell us, is Hera named after her? <laughs> um, I mean, I love Hera Lindsay Bird. Like, that's why that quotation from the poem Monica is used in the beginning. Um, actually, no. She's named after Hera, the like great goddess of domesticity. Of course, she is. <laughs> oh, how embarrassing! <laughs> um, which is like fun and ironic because yeah, Hera was like she she really hated her husband's mistresses and would like kind of carve them up in interesting ways and get her revenge. She was like the goddess of marriage, so I thought it was ironic to to name a homewrecker after that goddess. That's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> um, look, this book has been absolutely – people are frothing for it. Um, there's been this massive auction for the film and TV rights. Um, there's a lot of hype about it. How does it feel to be a debut novelist with all these people going, yeah? <laughs> it feels pretty pretty wild. I mean, it's kind of 
boring to say like I'm humbled but like I it's 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 insane like so I wrote the book when I was working as a bookseller mm. in Sydney and I spent two years working with my colleagues to unionize the bookstore to try and get like a dollar more an hour than minimum wage and I was doing my PhD remotely from the UK because of COVID and I was just writing this book for like something to f- to kind of make myself laugh because mm. I was living by myself and there were lots of lockdowns and it was a pretty dire time. Um, and then I submitted this book. I didn't show it to anyone when I was writing it because it was just kind of for me. And then when I thought I was done, I submitted it to an agent who I'd never met and she was in London for the London Book Fair and she was like, I love it, can I try and sell it? And I was like, sure, go for it, babe. And then like two days later I had like international book deals so the whole thing's been a bit of a ride wow. <laughs> and it's amazing, but I've just kind of had to um, just go with it because otherwise I wouldn't believe that it was happening. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you wrote the whole book without, on your own, in a room, without anybody kind of giving you feedback and that first feedback you got was basically, let's go. Let's do it. I mean, obviously there were edits from publishers later, but mm. yeah. 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 Wow. Okay. That's that's enormous um I'm just trying to I'm just trying to process that and then fire through many of my questions that I've got for you (laughs) I mean I guess look I want to talk to you about the balance of kind of what is happening in this book because there's been a lot said uh recently you know in the media and online about this sort of sad girl trope Mm. and sad girl books and what they mean and are we you know are we tired of them what do they achieve Mm. um and a lot of the conversation I think misses out the fact that they're really funny books, you know, and, and they're, they're really funny books and they're, they're quite true portraits of many people's, many people's lives and experiences and, and in many cases they can be a life raft for the people who are writing them as well, you know. Can you tell us a little bit about being, being the debut writer of a sad girl book? <laughs> God. Yeah, I mean, I knew that this was going to, to happen. I've been writing, because I also write arts criticism, mm. uh, and I've been writing about, you know, sad girly books for, for some time. Um, and I, yeah, I knew that this is how it would be marketed. I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> Cause it is, she's a sad girly. I mean, I'm saying it as a sad girl, <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. yeah. me too. Um, but I, yeah, I think that the whole concept of a sad girl novel being like a genre that people are tired of is like, and I'm going to say the obvious thing, but like pretty sexist and like a lot of internalized misogyny from women who who say it Mm. because like essentially if young women don't write about young women basically no one else does so the fact that they're being written I think is wonderful and the fact that young women are are reading them and they're so popular is because most readers of fiction are women and young women Mm. it it just makes sense to me that that market exists and, and and proliferates um, and in terms of, yeah, the sad girl novel, like what what does it achieve? I, there's so many different variations. Like you've yeah. got like an Otessa Moshfeg, which like is kind of funny but mostly devastating. And then you've got your kind of Sally Rooney, which is like, I don't know, funny in parts but kind of that's not the same vibe. And then my book I think is quite funny. <laughs> and yeah. I, I, I was kind of going for a kind of zany humour throughout the entire time and then even just the book that I'm now reading that I mentioned to you outside Sarah Pascoe's Widow is kind of doing a similar thing-ish to what mine is doing so there's so many variations and I just think 
great give give us more yeah we want more um keep writing everybody keep writing i will keep reading them <laughs> madeline will keep reading them um i want to talk a little bit more about hera and her character mm-hmm. um because as as i was reading her she struck me as the kind of person that like my friends and i describe as almost having something called iggy pop syndrome which is where you kind of get you kind of get stuck in your own brand of yourself you mm. know and then you can't like in the case of iggy pop he simply cannot wear a shirt like ever <laughs> again and and hera has got this kind of um she's a wonderful character she's um She's she's so funny and, you know, quite tortured and, and can be kind of quite grating as well. But she's got this kind of, like, effortless intelligence, doesn't really like being at work, is not sure where to apply this extraordinary intelligence, <laughs> has kind of got to has got to this certain point, you know, academically and socially and then is like, uh, I I don't know I don't know what to do and she's yeah. watching the people around her choose different paths yeah. and so she attaches herself to this to this man um, you know and kind of to this idea of a man mm. um, possibly in order to to feel something there seems to be this kind of premium I think on you know on being able to. Um, I don't know, hitch the mess of her existence to to a particular thing, something yeah. to occupy her thoughts with. Would you sort of agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. She's looking for something to, I think maybe this is in, in the book, like tether herself to the world. She feels like just totally adrift and she's not going to get satisfaction from work mm. and she can't quite relate to her friends even though she loves them because they all seem committed to the various paths they're taking and this man is kind of like the signifier of kind of normative happiness. And she's like, well, I've given everything else a go and it hasn't really worked out. So this is the next thing that I might <laughs> commit to. And then, of course, it goes further than than she would have perhaps first presumed. Yeah, totally. I mean, what what is it about Arthur? Tell us about Arthur. Why is she? Why him? <laughs> That's so funny. So many people have said that. They're like, Arthur. Like, I know that she's obsessed with him, but he's so vanilla. Someone called him a bro, which I thought was like incorrect but anyway yeah he's <laughs> quite a gawky bro right so yeah. gawky um yeah I think what is appealing to Arthur is so Hera's working as a, a comment moderator which is kind of the lowest of the low in the newsroom sorry comment moderators but it is it's a really shitty job um and she thinks of herself as like an educated person she is she's got like you know lots of degrees and you know she's she's no dummy but um in this job no one treats her with intellectual respect and what she likes about Arthur initially is that he like talks to her like she has a brain in her head so just to be acknowledged for like her personhood in that place of work is like the initial um kind of moment uh and then from there it's 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 tricky because because Hera is queer and Mm. so she's only ever dated women before um and it's kind of like coming to like a whole new possibility of a relationship because it's a, a straight passing relationship. So it's almost like a new frontier for her. Mm, she's cosplaying as a, as a normie. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And so in, in Arthur she kind of sees like maybe a different version of herself that, that she could be and the world would see her in a different way if they walked down the street together. And she's – I think a lot of people would relate to this. I certainly do. She's tired of like – having agency (laughs) 
<laughs> she's like, I don't want it anymore. Like, give it back. <laughs> um, and, and in Arthur, she thinks perhaps here is the... Um, here's something that will be constant. His life is already arranged, you know? Mm. He has a job. He has a wife. And it's kind of like if she could just delete the wife, she could just insert herself into his already formulated life, which seems tempting. And she knows exactly how it's going to go and yeah. and that that works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I love that, like, um, you know, there are, there are so many fantastic, like, uh, uh, film and music and pop culture references kind of fizzing all around this book. One that really delighted me uh, <laughs> is the Bridget Jones's diary references. There's this kind of strange, strange bit that Hera does when she goes to parties um, and she's sort of surrounded by all openings and things like that and she's surrounded by new interesting, clever people and she likes to test the waters by telling everybody that her favourite poet is the... <laughs> Instagram poet Rupi Kaur and just to just to sort of see how it lands and and this one time she does it and that I mean it doesn't it doesn't really go anywhere and it's a little bit similar to when Bridget Jones um is at that famous launch party and so she needs to go to the toilet (laughs) um can you tell us a bit about like what um, you know, what were you reading? What were you consuming when you were when you were writing this book? And and how did that sort of make its way into the text itself? Yeah, I mean, I think so many of the pop culture references are just like directly taken from things that my, my, I enjoy and my friends enjoy. So like, you know, you've got your your Bridget Jones, your Fleabag, you've got your Bell Hooks, you've got your Raven Lalani, you've got the kind of <laughs> it's the discourse. Um, but I think I I was also, yeah, as I said, when I was writing this book, I was also doing my PhD, mm. which is in um, contemporary women's autobiographical literary theory, bit of a mouthful. Um, and so I was thinking a lot about kind of the personal is political and kind of like um, how confessional feminism has kind of been turned into like more of a kind of neoliberal construct where all these kind of white women memoirs are kind of sold as really radical but really it's kind of white women just kind of complaining about capitalism but doing nothing so these were all kind of things that I was thinking about philosophically which maybe sounds too grandiose a word but as I was writing the book and so I kind of wanted to bring all of those ideas like like critical theory bring some Lauren but Lauren Ballant in like bring some um you know Byung-Chul Han psychopolitics kind of vibes into a text that's really readable. That's kind of what I was trying to do. I don't know if I achieved it. I think you definitely <laughs> did it. It's like it's um, it's rollicking and big but small, you know, um, and and frustrating and also relatable. Not that a book needs to be relatable in order to be enjoyable, but there is something um, there is something that can be quite satisfying about. Uh, you know, looking to a text and, and seeing yourself and seeing your experience reflected back to you. And Absolutely. I I certainly, um, you know, I, I, I did not um, have any sort of heterosexual affairs with, um, <laughs> with, with married dullish men, um, <laughs> but, but I did, I can, I can understand, I can understand the motivation behind, yeah. you know, the, the choices that led her there. Um, this is a, perhaps a, an odd question and maybe none of our business, but like, where is Hera now, do you think? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I don't – well, <laughs> I've actually had to be thinking about this because I – as you said, like, the book's been, like, optioned for TV and I'm developing it at the moment with a 
um, network, I guess. And, um, you know, they're asking about the second season. <laughs> I'm like, shit, Harry becomes Prime Minister. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, look, I think I hope for Hera that she's turned away from men because clearly that's not a thing for her. It wasn't working great. We're not working out well. Um, I just hope she's she finds something that she loves that isn't a person. Yeah. I think that's what she needs to do. And I don't know what it is going to be for her, but the idea that you can find yourself in someone else, I think, is an idea that's very limiting. Yeah, and I, I feel like it's something, it's a, it's a very... Um it feels like a, a hallmark of a certain age and a certain yeah. time um, and, and that premium on feeling something, even if it's diabolically, <laughs> you yeah. know, like this kind of urge to um, put stuff in front of you that's going to make something happen emotionally is yeah. like a big tension for her. Exactly. And it's like, um, you know, the idea of producing content out of your life, even if it's just for you to see mm. yourself in a story, kind of like main character energy. So hopefully she can move past that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that something that is really, you know, heartwarming and, and tender about this book is, is Hera's relationship with her father. Mm. Um, she she lives with her she lives with her dad. We don't learn a lot about her mother, but we know that there has been um, some enormous hurt and mm. some enormous hurt that she doesn't often feel safe to share with people. Mm. Um, but her dad is very much um, a safe person in her life, somebody that she has a lot of fun with, someone that, you know, her port of call in a storm. Mm. Um, why was that important for you to, to write that relationship? Um, I mean, first of all, just total um total kind of just bringing my world into it I I just love my dad <laughs> and I have a really really strong relationship with my dad and I I rarely see think um, representations of that in fiction especially in books about young women almost always they have daddy issues which you know lots of women do but also lots of women don't and I wanted to show the kind of really special relationship that can exist between a father and a daughter that's actually really beautiful and kind and I wanted that relationship to be the the heart of the novel because whenever, well, I mean, Harry disappoints herself constantly. She disappoints her friends. But when she disappoints her dad or, or feels that she might, that's where, for me, it's like, ah, the worst bits. And it's really wrenching. Um, yeah. I feel like this is a good moment to say hello to my dad who listens to the show every week and <laughs> provides feedback. Um, I grew up with my dad. Hello to my mum as well, who, of course, is listening and is a wonderful woman. But <laughs> it is such a, it's such a joy to read about a positive, a positive relationship about a, you know, yeah. a, a, single man and, a single man and his daughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. No, it's beautiful. And, yeah, with the... With the mums, I, I have my idea of what I think happened and I, I thought a lot about whether I should just tell the reader like what happened, but I think it's much more powerful. I, I decided, <laughs> but mm. I think it's more powerful for, for the reader not to know and to make their own conclusions because you just need to know that a rupture happened and that her dad was there for her and, and that's kind of where we leave it on the page. Yeah, I like that too. You can, you know, you can... You can bring whatever you want to that, yeah. and, and that's and that's okay. Um, and it, it it gives us enough to you know to get a sense of of who she is and why she is the way that she is. Her friends also do a lot. Um, I think I love her relationship with um, Soph and why can I not remember the other S name? <laughs> Sarah. Soph and Sarah. Of course, it's Sarah. It's always Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, who is this book for? Who do you want to read it? Um, I think 
obviously I want young women to read it because it's it's a book for for young women absolutely but I think it's really I would love it um if older women read it Mm. that's kind of the one category that I I just think would be fabulous because even though it does have lots of pop culture references and maybe it's some of the language is like different generations don't necessarily know what stuff means I've gotten this feedback from like my parents friends but um I think that it speaks so much to just the same things that every generation goes through and I think it's a nice portal for kind of intergenerational understanding if uh, in that way um and I mean god I would love it if heaps of men read it that would be amazing yeah it hasn't been marketed in that way but please if you're a man listening to this go read this book get in there do it yeah it'll be a good thing um you know and check in with yourself yeah <laughs> where yes, are you at where exactly. are you at in this text are you are you trending towards an Arthur type character you, Arthur? you need to stare yeah. yourself down you absolutely do stop being such a kind of flaccid Coward. Coward. <laughs> um, you know, that's our community service announcement for this afternoon. Um, I suppose we're, we're coming almost to the end of the show and, and to the end of the interview. Um, are you able to share with us any details about the process of kind of turning the book into a TV series? Like you said, they were already talking about, you know, season two. <laughs> know, Sounds wow. like things are galloping along. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I can't. It's just ridiculous legal stuff. I can't actually say who it's with, but I can definitely speak to the writing process. So I am writing the show, which is amusing, as I've never written a TV show before. Um, cool. But I'm having lots of help. But I I love writing dialogue, so that's great. Um, but I guess it's just kind of... Television is just so different because you need to hook the, the viewer by the first episode so they understand the premise. Mm. And with the book, kind of what takes like half a book to get to, I kind of need to establish in the first episode. Like not all of it, but that point needs to be made. So it's just kind of about setting up enough that the viewer is intrigued but doesn't know too much. So it's kind of a balancing game. And, um, you know, it's it's a visual medium. So kind of just working out different ways that I can do things that I just would never have even thought in the in the book so like you know dream sequences you know I was like talking to my so the the production company of British people and I was telling them about um oh shit what's that hating Alice and Ashley oh yeah I remember hating (laughs) Alice and Ashley and like sometimes she kind of like pictures herself in like a different situation the same thing happens in looking for Ella Brandy yeah and I was like I'm gonna take that so just using these kind of visual mediums it's really fun and kind of sometimes you're like that's a terrible idea like they didn't want to do a Lizzie McGuire style cartoon rude that's a shame um but yeah playing with all that is great and it's just it's a learning experience I'm like just googling how do you write a screenplay (laughs) fantastic um Madeline Gray thank you so much for coming on the show um Madeline's debut book a sterling novel uh, green dot is available in all good bookshops or at the library now um thank you also to the wondrous melissa lukashenko who was on the show earlier talking about her fantastic book eden glassy please do pick that one up and give that one a read as well i love that reading that she did it was just so um 
electrifying and joyous. Um, stick around. I'm going to go to a song in just a moment, but uh, Queerview Mirror is coming up next. I'm sure you've been listening and cheering Sam Elkin on as a fake faster this week. He's doing a brilliant job. He has also announced that very, very soon he'll be releasing a memoir of his own. So maybe I'll be able to get him on this show, which has been, you know, my secret plan all along. Um, please do stick around. Stay dialed. You're on Triple R. This has been Literati Glitterati, and I'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Literati Glitterati, a weekly book show that loves a good story well told. Literati Glitterati is broadcast live on Triple R each Wednesday from midday to 1pm. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and please feel free to keep in touch at rrr.org.au.